Welcome to the Westminster Chapel podcast. For more information and to support our mission to London and beyond, please visit westminsterchapel.org.uk. Ephesians 5, verse 3 to 8. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving, for you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the untruthful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Well, welcome again to Westminster Chapel. If you missed the start, my name is Howard. It's my privilege to be one of the leaders here. We're in a series called Walk in Love. We have reached uh, chapter five of Ephesians in this part of the series, a great message. It's called His Lighthouse. That will make more sense as we go through the passage together. I would encourage you to have it open in front of you so you can check that everything that I'm saying is not from my own mind, but out of the very words of God. Um, We believe in this book, the Bible, it's the inspired, infallible, living and active word of God that transforms and shapes our lives. So I'm going to take a moment to pray for the presence of God to come to help us to see him in his word. Lord, we thank you for the gift of your word and we thank you for the gift of your presence and we ask right now that you would come and give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear, give us hearts that are soft, to hear your voice and to receive your words, to be transformed by them. Come and show your power through the preaching of your word. Strengthen me, I pray, as I deliver this message in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let me start by asking you a question. Um, Maybe you've never been asked this question before, so there's always a first time for something, but have you ever been a victim of something called clickbait? Don't worry if that doesn't make sense to you. It will make sense more often in the internet age. It's a very common phenomenon. It happens to me um, when I am preparing to preach a sermon. And I'm looking particularly for a sermon illustration. And and I'm Googling. And I land on an article. And I get on a page. Maybe it's a certain kind of newspaper. And I'm kind of reading through the article. And either side of the article typically, or even in the middle of it, popping up little adverts. I think, 
Who, who's had that experience? Come on, give me a little sign that you're awake. Raising your hand. Yes, yes, good. Um, why, why are you watching such things? I don't know. Anyway, <laughs> um, I'm there. I'm, I'm looking at this advert. And the kind of advert that typically appeals to me would be like a child actor. Picture of a child actor from a heart warming film that's got, you know, it's got a place in my heart, a film like The Goonies, which I consider to be one of the all-time classics, with a character called Mikey, who's this misfit kid who's also asthmatic, and yes, I identify with him, I feel like a misfit, and I'm asthmatic as well, so I am a little bit interested in what's happened to the, to the person who played him back then and where they are now, so yes, in that moment, I am duped by darkness, and I click. Hello, not who Mikey is now. Hello, some other child actor from some other thing. Never heard of you. Boring, click. Uh, another one. Uh, no, still not there. Boring, click again. Still not there. Boring, click again. Now I'm starting to think. If you can really call this thinking as such, you know, <laughs> I'm in that place of, do I want to carry on to try and get to the answer and make good on all this time I've just lost, clicking, 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 that's been unfruitful, or do we just give up at this point? Anyway, I conclude I'm going to continue and click, 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 click. Ah, finally, I've got, I've got, got the answer. Here it is. Ah, it was Sean Astin. And now he's, yeah, he's older and he's put on a little bit of weight, but haven't we all? So what? That's not very interesting. Oh, and he, he also went on to play... Samwise Gamgee in the Lord of the Rings trilogy. And I'm like, but I already knew that, you fool. What are you doing? I check the time. It's like 10 minutes of my life has gone by that, that I will never get back that I've wasted. I realize I've just become totally duped by empty, deceptive kind of offer. You need to know this. Your life depends on this piece of information that I never actually needed to know. It was completely unproductive. Now, why am I sharing this with you wonderful, holy, saintly people who would never do anything like that? Well, two reasons. Number one is so that you can more, you can pray more informed, more informedly, in a better way. You can pray in a better way for your pastor. That's number one. Number two is so that you don't get duped by the darkness. This is just an illustration of that darkness in a far more dangerous way so that you can shine brightly and boldly for God. Paul, who's writing this letter, he's writing in the first century, and he's writing to us by the providence of God that we would walk, those of us who believed in Jesus, we would walk in the light. We'd walk as children of the light and have no fellowship with darkness. That's a big challenge today. We live in an ever-increasingly secular society that calls evil good and good evil, that celebrates sin, that shuts down, that cancels or no platforms, that, that stops even a freedom of speech for people who want to disagree and hold different values in our society today. So the question you've got to be asking yourself is, how do you live in the world but not of the world? Now, if you're a follower of Jesus and you're not asking that question, I would ask you to take your spiritual pulse. <laughs> it should be right in your face every day. 
How do I live in the world, but not of the world? Now, down through the centuries, Christians have answered this question, and, and before that, the people of God in, in, in different ways. There's really basically three options that you could do. Option number one is isolation. The Amish are a good example of this. Build like a wall to protect your society. Stay within it. Take absolutely, literally, have nothing to do with kind of language from passages like this and elsewhere in Scripture. So you don't listen to, to their music. You don't read their books. You don't socialize with, with them outside of the wall because you'll be corrupted. That's, that's option number one, isolation. Option number two is assimilation. Blend in, fit in, be a little bit flexible about what you believe. And maybe they'll like us uh, more and then they'll like Jesus more if we do that. So take marriage as an example. The definition of marriage, oh, they don't like our understanding of marriage. So let's tweak it a little bit here and there to allow for a man and a man to marry each other. As long as they love each other, isn't that really okay? And if we do that, maybe they'll like Jesus more. Both of those options, if you hadn't noticed, are really bad. And by the way, that's a picture of the Borg, Star Trek, assimilation. Anyway, <laughs> you can Google that if you're confusing what the slide is all about. The point is that we are continuously being pulled towards isolation or assimilation all the time. If you're a follower of Jesus, you're being pulled in which direction? I wonder where you're leaning most right now. Both of them are bad because they compromise the mission of God. If you isolate, you've got no relationship with the people that you're called to reach. If you assimilate, you've got no message to share with the people that you're called to reach. It's, it's too diluted. It's wrong for that reason. It's wrong also because it dishonors God. Somehow the world suddenly is like all massive and all powerful, almighty world. And we live in terror. We must protect ourselves, hide from the world so we're safe from it, or compromise to the world because it's so big and powerful. And when the world is really big, God is really small. And we stop fearing God. We stop having a happy, holy, righteous fear of him, and we fear everything else instead. We lose sight of the scripture, 1 John 4, 4, greater, greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world. Both those options are wrong. And what Jesus God does when he comes, he gives us option three, incarnation. Not isolation, not assimilation, but we are called to incarnation. And that is what Paul is dealing with in the second half of this letter, Ephesians, from chapters four to six. How do you live in the world, but not of the world? He's saying, let me show you how. Let me show you how to live this way, not isolate or, or assimilate, but really live out as the children of light, as, as to walk in the light. And so I'm going to make four points to you from this passage that was read to us so well earlier. Four points. Each of them is an application point at the same time. And I want you to be thinking as I'm sharing them, which one of these four points in particular do you need to apply the most in your life right now? My first point is the word flee. Flee. Paul is writing to encourage us all to flee sexual immorality and everything associated with it. 
flee that desire for that little bit more titillation, sexual gratification, or coveting someone else's body so that you can have personal sexual gratification with them, whether that's physically or just as an idea of them, that you want to steal them for yourself. Have, have nothing to do with that, he's saying. That, that shouldn't even be named, or uh, you, you shouldn't even be able to describe that or name that about the people of God, the church. It Should, shouldn't even be, be, be discussed in that way. Don't even joke about this, he's saying. Don't joke about it like the world does. Don't do that. He's saying, take sin seriously. Take sin seriously. Take sexual immorality very seriously. Make like Joseph and run. Sometimes, this is Joseph from the Old Testament, sometimes you need to physically remove yourself from the situation. That's, that's the sort of uh, emergency, last resort form of fleeing, if you like. Paul sums up his whole thinking. He writes it somewhere else. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18. Flee sexual immorality. Three very simple words. Flee sexual immorality. This is, this is a strong subject for Paul that he's, that he's writing about. So how do you flee? Well, I said sometimes you might have to do that physically, but it begins in your mind. It starts in your mind, in your thought life. So right now, if you were to go to Cardinal Place, it's just, just over there. It's a shopping center with loads of restaurants and shops. And the main shop there is Marks and Spencers. And if you were to walk towards that right now, you would see Sign of the Times, basically half-naked women wearing bras. All the images, the pictures, that, that's what they're trying to sell. Not just a little bit, but the entire shop front. What do you do in that moment? Do you kind of... Forrest Gump, like turn and run, Forrest, run. And suddenly you see that and then you run as fast as you can in the other direction. And this sort of weird expression of holy revolt about that. But then you end up seeing loads of other things as you're running away. I want to say that you, you flee in your mind. You flee in your mind. Very simply, you immediately avert your gaze. You look away. And then you start to think about the lies that you're trying to be sold by what the temptation it is. And it's appealed to your heart to make you want to look. And then you start to focus your mind on things which are higher and better and greater. And we'll get to that shortly. There's a challenge today. And it's this, that we don't take sin seriously enough. Secularism's yeast's trivialization of sin has perfaded the dough of the church and our hearts. So that you might find people thinking, sex outside of marriage, what's so wrong about that? Who gets hurt with that? Isn't it helpful for people to know if they're sexually compatible or, or, or not? Now, maybe you're not thinking that, but trust me, someone that you know is. Or you might be thinking more like this, the way to live in the world but not of the world is to get as close to sin without sinning as possible, to get right up to the very edge of sin. That, that's how to do it. I'm going to get so close to sin, but I'm not going to actually sin myself. Let me tell you a little parable by way of warning and illustration. I came across this in preparation and I've made it my own a little bit. A billionaire owns a yacht, a really nice luxurious, super fast yacht. And he needs to find a helmsman for this yacht. He's going to pay 
to sail the yacht. And he has three applicants, and he's got people on board, his friends, to be on board the yacht to test out these applicants as they take it in turns to sail the yacht. He's looking for a very skillful sails, sailor, a good helmsman. So uh, helmsman auditioning number one comes, and he sails the rock within 30 meters of a dangerous rocky cliff face. And the people on board are like, wow, this guy's got, this guy's got talent, right? Applicant number two comes, and this time he takes the yacht within 15 meters. He's halved the distance. He's really close. The people on board are hushed in awe of his ability. Wow. Applicant number three comes along, and he sails the boat straight out into the middle of the harbor so everybody can enjoy the views and relax. Which applicant does the billionaire employ? Number three. But why? Why number three? Because he doesn't want a helmsman who's so self-confident that he will take his boat right up close to the rock face and allow for one little moment of poor attention, poor judgment, and everything's destroyed. He doesn't want that. He wants a helmsman who reveres the preciousness of the yacht and the human cargo. And so it is with God. You are too precious for him to allow you to risk ruining your life upon the rocks. Now you may have noticed as well that the way I am interpreting this passage in Ephesians, which begins with, but sexual immorality and then impurity and it names filthiness and foolish talk and crude joking and so on. I am saying that's all an outworking of sexual immorality. I can't prove that to you. I think the way that Paul repeats that later in the passage in verse 5, the same sequence sort of justifies that. But the word that he used for sexual immorality does as well. It's the word porneia in the Greek. It means all forms of sexual deviancy. Things like sex outside of marriage, but also pornography. It's catch-all. It's covering everything. And so you might ask then, well, why sex? Why is Christians in the church, they always talk about sex? Well, that's because sex back in the first century when Paul was writing was a big deal. They've created a whole religion out of sex worship, temple prostitutes that you'd go to have sex with in order to get the, the, the blessing of these false gods. That's what they did back then. And so it was a big subject. You needed to address it pastorally. Couldn't overlook it. It's a big subject then, and it's a really big subject still today. And there are reasons why it's a big subject today. And so I'm going to take probably a little bit more time than I might ordinarily to try and summarize to you an amazing work, probably one of the most important books that's come out in the last 10 years, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self by Carl Truman. The basic premise is that this sexual revolution that happened, that we often think that began in the 1960s with free love and hippies and all of that, he's saying that that is underlaid by a much greater revolution, a revolution that's been going on for much longer in our very understanding of what it means to be a self and how we form or shape our identities. So traditionally, people would find their sense of self and identity by starting by going outside of themselves. 
They'd find out what's the greater good, what's valued outside me in the community I'm a part of, and then I will go inside and I will persuade my heart to live in obedience for the sake of the greater good. There was a sense of self-denial. But then came philosophers like Rousseau and then the Romantic movement. And they, to some degree, rightly observed the evil and the corruption in the society out there of where people are looking to find their sense of of meaning. And they're saying that that is suppressing and suffocating what's inside. And they say there's no such thing as original sin, that inside there's this innate good self that's being oppressed by evil outside and being trapped from being able to, to, to express itself in society. Maybe you know the phrase by Rousseau, man is born free, but everywhere in chains. And then you have people like Nietzsche, Karl Marx, Charles Darwin coming along together, destroying utterly ways to find a sense of meaning and identity outside of yourself. So that you are now free from all of that state control, church dogma, the wealthy elites shaping this is how you should be. You're free from all of that to find your own sense of self and identity. And then along comes Sigmund Freud. And he says that sex is no longer just an activity that you do. It's absolutely core to who you are. Your identity and your sexuality are are fused together. So what does this mean? So we have the traditional person now for the modern person, today's person. They don't go outside to find their sense of self. They start by looking inside. What do I feel? What do I desire? Not that there's anything completely wrong with feelings and desires, but they're just as subject to being corrupt and wrong as what's outside as what's inside. And particularly, sexual desires are being looked at. I'm going to go in, find this sense of self and feeling of who I am inside, and then I'm going to go outside later, and I'm going to demand that you must accept what I have found to be true of myself on the inside. They become the determiner of what is good. They become the ultimate validator of who they are. So it's no longer the group outside, the community. I'm living up to what they say is good, so they approve of me. No, I've got to do all of that for myself. I am the ultimate validator for myself. So what we have is a battle between self-fulfillment, this sort of internal, this is who I am, this is my sense of self, versus self-denial. You need to deny something of yourself to experience greater joy. Now, a good way to try and illustrate this for you would be to use, to borrow someone else's illustration, um, from the sound of music, hopefully. Have you seen the sound of music? Raise your hand or you know of it. Nods, brilliant. Hollywood adaptation of the story. And the moment where Maria is uncertain, what does she do? Does she leave the convent? She's a nun. In order to go and marry Jork, and what is the abbess's advice? I don't think an abbess would ever, ever give this advice personally. But she suddenly bursts into song. Maybe she would burst into song. I don't know. I've never been a nun. There we go. <laughs> Climb every mountain. Ford every stream. Follow every rainbow till you find your dream. It's the gospel of self-fulfillment. Do what you feel is right. That's it. Go do that. The true story for the real Maria von Trapp, is very different. She did not love Jork, the man that she is to marry in the film. She loved the kids. So she denies herself 
as an expression of love for kids to marry a man that she doesn't love. This is what she says. I really and truly was not in love. I liked him, but didn't love him. However, I loved the children. So in a way, I really married the children. But by and by, I learned to love him more than I have ever loved before or after. Isn't that extraordinary? Totally countercultural to the way our society would advise somebody. But this way of self-denial resulted in deeper love. And that, of course, is the way of Jesus, the call of Christians to deny that which is sinful and corrupted and wrong in order to live for that which is good and beautiful and pure and true. There's another reason to flee as well here. Flee because otherwise you'll be duped, duped by the darkness. The best way for me to try and illustrate this sort of Empty words, empty deceptive words is the way that Paul describes it of what's going on, particularly with sexual immorality and its, its appeal to get you caught up in its web of sin is to talk about phone sex operators. Probably never thought a pastor would say that in the church, but I think it's a helpful illustration that they might present as this glossy, voluptuous, photoshopped image. You know, if you were around back in the days in phone boxes and booths, they would be all around the edge of that. If you walked down the street, you could, you could not, almost not notice that, that, that. That's what's being presented. You could pay money to talk to someone who looks like that. Now, in Googling and what I was talking about before, I came across this interesting article in The Sun. We've got a few pictures of this about a real phone sex operator. This is true. And uh, she's 63. She watches Bargain Hunt with the volume turned down, wearing her slippers, and occasionally a pair of marigolds, which she says she, she flicks to make it sound like she's wearing suspenders. The lie versus the reality. All the time, we're being sold a lie. And the thing about this whole way of forming identity in our culture today is it's an absolute lie and a sham. Maybe you didn't pick this up, but I, I just very rapidly demonstrated to you, as this book does, that the whole process that people are told to go and find their sense of identity inside them, what you feel, your desires are what's most important, is a culturally, externally conditioned idea that we can trace that's outside. You don't start inside. You've already started outside, and it's because of what the culture is telling you to do, and you've been conditioned by it on the outside that you've already gone inside. You've been hoodwinked. You've been duped. I'm sorry if I'm pulling the rug away, but there's good news coming. But first, we need to recognize and deal with the warnings that come in this passage as well. It's not just humiliating to be duped by darkness and to, to believe in a lie. It's really dangerous too. And dangerous to keep doing that persistently, without repentance, to engage in sexual immorality again and again and again, without confessing your sin and enjoying the experience 
of God's forgiveness, you're in real danger. Paul lists two particular sober warnings in this passage. Number one is there is no inheritance for such people. They are excluded, verse 5, from the kingdom of God, from life, from goodness, from beauty, from hope, from joy, from the experience of this love we've been talking and singing about in this life and on into eternity. That's warning number one. Warning number two is that you will face the wrath of God, the just judgment of God for your, your sin, yourself, because you are not by faith letting it be paid upon Jesus. It's on you. And I wouldn't want to be you on the day of judgment in that case for anything else in this world. These are sober warnings written into Scripture to deliberately wake us up to find faith in Jesus, to trust him or to walk with him and make sure that our lives steer well clear from the dangerous rocks of sexual sin that we might sail in the harbor of his goodness within the boundaries of which he's given these great gifts. That's the first point. Do you need to flee? Do you need to flee sexual immorality? Is that the main thing that you need to apply in your life? There'll be more said on this next week. Andy's going to unpack the whole topic of pornography for us. We believe it's important. It's one of the biggest challenges facing our culture today. And we think we're foolish if we're not talking about that. So there'll be more on that um, next week. But I've got three more points I'm going to make. And they're all going to be a lot shorter than the first one. So don't panic on me. The next point is thank. Thank. Paul says, verse 4, instead let there be thanksgiving. Let there be thanksgiving instead. Don't go that way, but do this instead. Let there be thanksgiving. Don't get angry and complain. Oh, we're not allowed to do that. We can't do that as followers of Jesus. No, give thanks for what we are allowed to do, for the freedom and permissions that we do have in Christ. When we moved from Croydon to Westminster, our car started to keep very different company. Our car was secondhand when we bought it. It's now... Uh, more than 10 years old since then. It's a Nissan Note. It's probably worth absolutely nothing. And it is parked next to Porsches, Bentleys, uh, really flash Land Rovers, like mega, mega, 20, 30,000 pound, plus, 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 I don't know how much they cost, kind of cars. And for the first time in my life, I've started to think, maybe our car's not, not all right. Maybe we need a better car. I'd never thought about that before until we moved to Westminster that we needed a better car. But now it's like, oh, it's so outclassed. Is there something that we don't know? Is it, is it a problem? And so I would then go and talk to my wife, and she'll bring me back to my senses, as will our bank account. Um, and I'll start to think about our car and begin to remember that, one, we have a car. That's quite a nice thing to have, isn't it? We have a car, and it passes its MOT, and it gets us to where we want to go, and it will even work on the new eco-fuel that the government is going to phase in. I'm like, wow, we don't even have to get rid of this car. This car, is, this car is great. And I start to be able to thank God for this wonderful car that he's given us, and also that no one now will ever want to steal it <laughs> in the neighborhood in which we live. <laughs> but this is a strategy of Satan, right from the beginning. Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, they're you cannot eat of this one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and he makes them fixate. All enemy, the enemy Satan wants you to do is to see the one tree that you can't have. And you forget there's hundreds and hundreds of beautiful trees that you can have. Don't fall for his schemes. We need to thank God. We need to thank God for sex. God is the author of sex. He's the creator of it. He's not a killjoy. 
We have sex because it's his gift. It was his idea. He said, wow, thank you, God, that you've created sex. Thank you, God, that you've given boundaries for sex in which we can operate best. So we're not damaged and abused by this very powerful thing that we call sex. So we know that the what it is meant to do and the, and the why behind it. That when people have sex, they need to do that in the context of marriage because it's two people joining all of their lives together. Not just their physical bodies, but everything about themselves. They're joining, they're taking the same name, they're, they're joining households. There's a complete union of which sex is meant to be an expression of that. And in that union, there's meant to be the possibility for life to come out of it as well. To a man and a woman. Now, I know that doesn't always happen, but the very possibility is there. And this is meant to be a signpost of God's reconciliation work over all things. Heaven and earth, which are separated, he wants to bring together and join together to becoming one, that there would be eternal life. Jesus is from heaven, the heavenly man coming to earth, joining in this world, the two becoming one to give us what? The gift of eternal life. It's all about signpost and significance and revealing and unveiling that the the ultimate ecstasy of of sex is going to be just a tiny taste of the ultimate joy of what it's going to be like in the new heavens and earth. This is what what it's all about. And this is because of the what and the why that, that we then get the who that comes about who you have sex with. I'll get to that shortly. But first we need just to thank. We thank God for sex. We thank God for our identity, that it isn't based on how much sex that we have. That's so common today, isn't it? I think of the film, The 40-Year-Old Virgin. Ha ha, let's mock him. You've reached the age of 40 and you're still a virgin? You're rubbish. You are so worthless. What an idiot you are. You have failed in life because you've, you've got to that age and you haven't had sex. How stupid is that? that that's what our culture thinks. It defines your sex is linked to your identity. Hallelujah. Our identity is based on the image of God. We're made in his image. If you're a believer, it's based on being born again, that you are an adopted, beloved child of God. Our identity isn't achieved through our hard work. It's not about what you do. It's received. It's a gift of the grace of God. So you don't have to keep living up to somehow take hold of it. It's already yours. You don't have to spend ages trying to create a great self-identity and then sustain it. You don't have the crushing pressure to go and validate it to the world and say, this is true because I feel it, whether they feel like that or not. Our identity comes from God. This is wonderful. So liberating. We don't go outside first. We don't go inside first. We go up. And in going up, we discover that he has already come down. And he takes up residence inside us so that we can then go out for him. The Christian identity is very different. Helps us manage what's going on outside of us, has a right perspective on that. Helps us manage inside ourselves, have a right perspective on that and how they work together only because there is a transcendent one above us. Wow, such good news. Such good news. Do you need to stop complaining about what you can't do and start thanking God for what he's given you. Point number three, discern. How do we live in the world but not of the world? We discern. Verse 10, try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Will God, will Jesus, will he like this, this behavior, this way that I'm acting? 
back up to verse 9 if you need a bit more fleshing out of that. Is this, is this good? Is it right? Is it, is it true? Or reverse those things. Is it bad? Is it wrong? Is it deceptive? Search out the scriptures for what they say about those things. Listen to the Spirit teaching you as you're reading the Scriptures so you can walk in step with the Spirit. I think that we need to be very careful about the difference between friendship and fellowship. Jesus was the friend of sinners, but he didn't have fellowship with sinners. He didn't partake in what they were doing. He didn't encourage their activities. What about you? Can you be present with people who are sinning? and not take part in their works of darkness? Can you drink, for example, with friends and not give in to peer pressure to get drunk? Can you socialize with work colleagues and not get caught up in the web of flirtation, theirs or your own, trying to find approval and all of that? Can you, can you walk a different path? Can you watch the football tonight without needing to swear? Because you've got enough adjectives in your vocabulary that you don't need that. We need to be more sensitive to the Holy Spirit. We talked about this a few weeks back, to not grieve the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is pictured figuratively as a dove coming upon Jesus. And we need to be sensitive to when our sin offends him and the dove, the wings of the dove start to flap and fly away. To mind the gap between commission of sin and confession of sin. There's one point of extra clarity Paul gives here in verse 7. Do not partner with them. Do not partner with them. That's a strong word. It means more than friendship. It's an intimate closeness or union. And I think it connects directly to what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 39. Marry only in the Lord, i.e. marry only another believer. Don't be yoked to an unbeliever. Don't partner with them. Let me try and illustrate this for you with an example. What would happen if Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump were to get married? Their political differences, I argue, are so different that it would be disastrous. They would disagree about everything. And that's just politics. Now multiply that by a gazillion for where people's differences are spiritual. For a person who says, Christ is the center of everything for me. How I choose to live, how I spend my money, how I use my time, where I work, what I do, how I'll raise my kids. All of these questions are rooted around Christ. For somebody who that's not, they'll be all over the place. You're going to be in conflict and argument all the time. And it's going to harm both of you. Just don't do that. Paul is saying, don't, don't do that. Don't, don't partner with them. The final point I want to make is arise. Arise. Paul here, in the last part, verse 14, he quotes something else. We're not sure exactly what it is. It could be an ancient hymn. It could be parts of the Bible. It's not an exact quotation of anything that's known in the Scriptures. But I believe that it most closely comes near to Isaiah chapter 60, verses 1 to 3. Um, so I'm going to take a few moments to read those verses to you. Arise, 
shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. If we go back through this letter of the Ephesians, you start to see this whole theme beginning to emerge of this calling to arise and shine. This is what Paul is, is getting at, and that's what he's driving towards in this letter. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, what are the people of God called for but to be blameless, holy and blameless before God and before the world, to be dazzlingly, beautifully pure and different and to shine like that, to be what he's called us to be, to be who he has declared us to be already children of the light. How can we do that? Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1, we were dead spiritually in darkness, despair, without hope, but by his great mercy, he's made us alive in Christ. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead now works in us, so we are coming alive. We're coming alive to full stature of who we are Now, do we work that out on our own? Do we say, this Christian faith is great. It's going to help me live my best life ever, like right now in this life? No. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 and onwards says that we're called to get our little light and to join it with lots of other lights in the local church, which Paul is saying is, is the household of God, the family of God. And then he goes on to say that Jesus is the cornerstone and we're like little stones being built together around Christ to become the dwelling place for God by his spirit, the God who is a light, that we might shine forth his light into the world. This is a holy, glorious calling. He has been our lighthouse. Now he's saying, I want you, church, to be my lighthouse. Jesus, who is called the light of the world, In the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5 says of the people of God, the church, you are the light of the world, the city on a hill. You're the community who's to go out and push back the frontiers of darkness, to expose the darkness, that people might not be destroyed on the rocks of sin, that they might be able to see the light and find their way home, find their way to heaven and to Christ. You are the light. We are the light. So the questions become then, will you isolate? Will you assimilate? Or will you incarnate? Will you really join with your church family? Become a member, yes, but become a committed member. Become a regular attender. Become somebody who's fully present with the body of Christ whenever you can be because You want to have a bright, glorious, shining light that is a collectively powerful witness to the world. And what happens if we do that? Well, I believe the promises of Isaiah 60 are ours today. The principle applies. When we really start to arise and shine, the nations will come. The nations are already all over the London, but that they will come to the light of this place, to the light of God shining through us. His goodness, his righteousness, his truthfulness. Kings will come, it says. MPs, politicians, great leaders will come. I think of the Queen of Sheba who came all the way to Solomon to find out how are you doing all of this? This amazing empire that you've built. What, what, is, what is going on? It's God. It's God, it's, it's only God. 
Today is our wake-up call. Today is a day for each one of us to dust off the impact of COVID and the pandemic, trying as that has been, and to say, I will arise and shine. Because the light has come. The light, if you're a believer, is in you. If, if you. if you're not a believer, we'd encourage you, trust Jesus today. Respond in the chat, ask for prayer. But if you're a believer, arise and shine. Arise and shine. This is the message, arise. Stand up in the power of Christ and his love and shine. How will you do that? Not just on your own, but collectively. Well, we're going to respond now. We're going to worship and I'm going to invite the band to come up. But before you stand up, I want to make this a, a special kind of response. Very simple thing. I'm inviting you in the room and at home to stand up. But when you stand up, to either say out loud, or if you're not comfortable with that, in your head, I will arise. There's a declaration. To God, to yourself, to others, I'm in this. I'm in this. It's been a difficult 18 months. But there's a world of darkness out there that needs the church. The glory of God almost demands in a righteous way that we, we arise. He's worthy of our standing up. He stood up for us. Now we want to stand up for him and for all the other people who are like us who are lost in the darkness. Isaiah chapter 9 talks about a people who are walking in darkness. You've heard it at Christmas. A people walking in darkness, despair, loneliness, helplessness, all sorts of problems, that they have seen a great light. The coming of Christ prophesied, and now is the coming of his church. So let's take a moment, if you're ready, to stand. Stand, and I will say it, and hopefully you can say it, and then I'll pray. For your glory, Lord, we want to say together today that we each individually, I will arise. If that's you, stand up. I will arise. Lord, we're praying, God, help us. We want to arise and shine. We want to stand up in the power of the Spirit to flee from all forms of sexual immorality, to not be duped by the lies of darkness anymore, to give thanks for who you are and what you've done for us. Lord, and all the great gifts that you give us. Lord, to discern what is pleasing to you. How should we live, Lord? We believe that you'll speak to us. You'll guide us every step of the way. Lord, but above all, we want to arise today. To arise in your power, for your glory, that we might see hundreds, thousands of people come to faith in you and be transformed by the light of your love. Amen. your armor on hear the call of Christ our captain for now the weak can say that they are strong in the strength that God has given 
With shield of faith and belts of truth, we'll stand against the devil's lies. An army bold whose battle cry is love, reaching out to those in darkness. captive soul but to rage against the captor and with the sword that makes the wounded whole we will fight with faith and valor when faced with trials on every side we know the outcome is secure and Christ will have the price for which he died an inheritance of nations. Come see the cross where love and mercy meet as the Son of God is stricken. See his foes lie crushed beneath his feet, for the conqueror has risen. And as the stone is rolled away, and Christ emerges from the grave, this victory march continues till the day every eye and heart shall see him. Strengthen every stride, give grace for every hurdle that we may run with faith to win the prize of a servant good and faithful. As saints of old still line the way, retelling triumphs of his grace, we hear their calls and hunger for the day. When with Christ we stand in glory. In a moment, we're going to come to a time of communion. There's just a space just right now, just to be still. Just to be attuned to God. What he's saying to you. What he also might be saying for others. We'd like to make space for that in our church. We believe in the inspired and fallible word of God, but we believe that God speaks prophetically today. In fact, the scriptures lead us to that conclusion. And there might be a word of encouragement, insight 
for, for others, for this church. We just want to take a moment to just be still. I'm going to ask you a, a question of which of those four words as well? Which of these four words does God want to underline for you, for how you should go from this place and live? Flee. Have you been living too close to the rocks of sin? And he wants you to flee. Whether that's sexual immorality or any kind of sin. Second is thank. Have you been moaning, complaining, bitter about what you don't have? And your call is to just, God forgive me, I've been so ungrateful. I'm going, to, I'm going to thank you. I'm going to thank you for what you've already given me. Do you need to discern? Is that your application word? Have you just been thinking about, I'm going to do what suits me. I'm going to serve my purposes here. I'm going to work out the most pragmatic solution to this problem rather than hear from God about what he thinks. Or is it for, is it arise? Do you feel like you've been sat down watching the church do its thing from the sidelines, not really involved, warming a seat or a pew, but not really engaging, not really giving yourself, not really risking deeper friendship with others. Maybe you don't want to get hurt, but God is stirring you to arise, arise. Which, which word is the word that God wants you to focus on today and to bring to him? Pray to him, whether it's confession or help, I need strength. God, I need you to live this way for you. Just going to take a few more moments just to, just to be still, just for you to breathe and be, be present to God. Breathe on every one of us. Help us to take what you are saying in your word and to have faith to be able to live it out. I thank you that you once went into a synagogue where there was a man with a withered hand and you commanded him to do the thing which was very impossible for him to stretch it out that he did that and all the withering was undone so Lord we want to proceed by faith that as you command and call us to live out these things there's grace and enabling and the very command that you're asking us to live out whether that is to flee whether that is to thank whether that is to discern whether that is to arise and all the withering effects of sin and weariness and inability will go as we seek by faith to walk in the light of your love. So come and help us. Help us to meet with you. Help us to keep enjoying your presence and 
worshipping you out of it, even now. Amen. Thanks for listening to Sermon Audio from Westminster Chapel. If you'd like to partner with us in making disciples and sharing the gospel, please consider making a one-off or regular donation. Visit westminsterchapel.org.uk forward slash giving to find out how.